everyone. Welcome to Osteobites. My name is Christina Iptoma, and I am mom to Osteo Angel Dylan and director of scientific programs at MIB Agents. And today in Osteobites, we are talking to Dr. Deborah Friedman from Vanderbilt University. Dr. Friedman will be discussing a prospective sarcoma study called the Cohort to Augment the Understanding of Sarcoma Survivorship Across the Lifespan, or CAUSAL for short, which is another fabulous acronym. <laughs> Always impressed when you guys can come up with these um, acronyms that actually make sense. Um, so thanks so much, Dr. Friedman, for joining us on Osteobite. Today, we are thrilled to have you. And, um, you know, this is actually our last episode of 2023 of our season four. So we're so happy to have you um, help us close out the year. Um, this Osteobites actually first started in 2020, um, right after COVID started. Our executive director, Anne, thought it would be a great way to still keep people connected, even though we all had to be apart. And um, and so it's, you know, continued since 2020, and we're excited to start season five um, in January. But anyway, we are honored, uh, Dr. Friedman, to have you join us for our closing episode of the year. And thank you also to Walker, our panelists today, for joining us. We always love having you on, Walker. Um, a little bit more about our guest today. Dr. Deborah Friedman is a professor of pediatrics in the Division of Hematology and Oncology at the Monroe Carroll Jr. Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt. She's the E. Bronson Ingram Chair of Pediatric Oncology and the leader of the Cancer Control and Prevention Program and directs the Cancer Survivorship Programs at the Vanderbilt Ingram Cancer Center. Dr. Friedman's research interests lie in the long-term outcomes for cancer survivors, as well as the design of novel therapeutic protocols for childhood cancer, designed to decrease adverse long-term effects of therapy. She has leadership roles in the Children's Oncology Group and is an internationally recognized expert in cancer survivorship, participating in projects evaluating best practices and models of care. And she's investigating a diverse group of physiologic and psychosocial outcomes among survivors of pediatric cancer, hematopoietic stem cell transplant, and medical oncology. Friedman completed her pediatric residency and a joint fellowship in pediatric hematology, oncology, and cancer epidemiology at the University of Pennsylvania and the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And prior to joining Vanderbilt in 2008, she served as a co-director of the Cancer Survivorship Program at CHOP and then as the founder and director of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center Survivorship Program. So we're so excited to have you um, discuss the uh, study today. And before you get started, um, I just have some announcements um, and reminders. We have some deadlines coming up in January for both our Outsmarting Osteosarcoma Research Grant and for our Factor Conference Abstracts. Um, so our uh, 2024 Outsmarting Osteosarcoma Research Grant Program, there are two mechanisms. There's a $100,000 one-year grant, and there's a $50,000 young investigator grant, um, and um, have to be a legal U.S. resident to be eligible. And applications are due January 26, and uh, you can apply on Proposal Central. There's more information on our website, and I will put a link in the chat. And we're now also accepting abstract submissions for our annual factor conference, um, which is going to be June 20th to 22nd in Cleveland. Um, and those are due on January 12th, and the application is also in Proposal Central. And lastly, um, we just launched a Google group for medical professionals with a clinical or research interest in osteosarcoma. It's called the Osteosarcoma Medical Discussion Network, or OSMDNet for short, and it's a closed, moderated group, and you can request to join on our website, and I'll put a link in the chat for that as well. Um, Walker, could you please introduce yourself? 
Yeah, hi. I'm uh, I'm the steers. I might be a junior advisor, board vice president, and uh, also an Oscar Warrior. So I'm extremely excited to see what uh, Dr. Friedman has to present to us today as uh, as an Oscar Warrior and Oscar Survivor. So I really, I'm really excited to to say the least. So from there, you can take it from there, Dr. Friedman. On that, I'm really excited. First of all, thank you, Christina, um, for the kind invitation to present today. Um, and, um, and thank you all for joining today. Um, and Walker, I look forward to hearing your input and, um, and thoughts. Um, so today I'm going to talk about, um, the causal study. Um, and I would like to take credit for that wonderful acronym, but it was actually my co-investigator, Dr. Tuak Al, who came up with that acronym. And here at Vanderbilt, we finally call her the acronym queen because she has the most amazing ability to um, create acronyms. Um, and this is really a collaborative study um, that we have here at Vanderbilt. Um, and these are my co-principal investigators. Um, so the this is um, a cohort study that we are developing, um, and it, it is actually open to all sarcoma patients, um, which includes, obviously, but it's not limited to osteosarcoma. And the reason we actually developed this cohort study is that we felt that there are are a lot of children as well as adults who are affected by sarcoma. Sarcoma, however, in the great scheme of cancer is still a rare disease. Um, and a lot of research has not gone on into what are the kind of oncologic and non-oncologic outcomes of sarcoma. What are the determinants of the, those outcomes? Um, and how can we think more globally about following patients who we've treated for sarcoma um, for such outcomes? So the specific, and this is funded right now from an NCI grant. Um, so we are planning to construct a cohort of at least 2,100 sarcoma patients um, across the lifespan. And this is going to be kind of a longitudinal investigation to look at the frequency and type and impact of adverse events, um, both and this is going to include this includes patients who are actively on therapy as well as patients who have completed their therapy. We also want to we also know that there's incredible inter-individual variation between in patients um, with respect to short-term adverse outcomes as well as long-term adverse outcomes. So for those, you know, and, you know, for so for sarcomas, large groups of patients with the same type of sarcoma are treated with the same agents. Um, and that's probably even more true for osteosarcoma, where there are fairly limited um, treatment protocols, uh, you know, most commonly still containing, you know, methotrexate, cisplatinum, and doxorubicin. Um, so despite patients getting the same therapy, there is the array and frequency and severity of short-term side effects and long-term side effects 
differs quite a bit. So we want to try to understand more about that. So we know that drugs are broken down by um, enzymes that are programmed by genes that we have. And we also know that when that obviously the way chemotherapy works is by messing up DNA repair. And then you have to have repair of those of that of those uh, disruptions in order, especially in normal tissues. So we really want to look at the role of genes that encode for either drug metabolism or DNA repair on both treatment efficacy, right? Do people just get more bang for their bucks, so to say, um, with um, if they have certain genetic makeup, um, cancer therapy induced short-term and long-term toxicity, and unfortunately, of those who do not survive their cancer. And then the third aim is actually um, by collection of tumor and germline tissue um, to see if we can develop a personalized liquid biopsy assay, otherwise known as circulating tumor DNA, so um, to monitor response recurrence and minimal residual disease and see if that ultimately down the road, this is more about the, in the future, to see if that's going to change the overall mortality from this disease. As people on this call know who are familiar with osteosarcoma, the way relapse is often diagnosed is, you know, you go in and you have some sort of imaging study and the tumor is back, or you have symptoms, which prompts an imaging study and the tumor is back. But by the time that happens, it's harder to treat. So if we can identify a really good way of monitoring circulating tumor DNA along the treatment course, maybe we can pick it up, pick up, you know, subclinical relapse and get on top of it before it becomes, certainly before it becomes metastatic. So those are the aims of this study. And this is kind of an overall study schema. Um, so um, we are prospectively recruiting sarcoma patients. We started this out initially as those over 10 years, but now we're recruiting anybody. So our youngest patient on the cohort is six months old and our oldest patient is 94 years old. So it is truly across the lifespan. Yes, wow. Yes. Um, and we have kind of two groups, right? We have the group of patients who have previously treated who are in likely in surveillance right now, as well as those who are diagnosed. And we're going to continue this cohort till at least 2026. Um, so the first aim kind of looking at adverse oncologic and non-oncologic outcomes will include everyone. That second aim of looking at DNA repair and metabolism will include those treated with chemotherapy and or radiation therapy. And the circulating DNA also will be will be looked at those who are newly diagnosed. Those will be the newly diagnosed patients that follow them um, and they could be treated with chemotherapy, radiation, or neither. Um, and we are collecting a lot of information um, from these patients. So we're getting medical record abstraction for treatment and toxicity data. We have health outcome surveys that are completed by the patient or if it's a child, um, the caregiver. We are looking at activity assessments, clinical assessments. Um, as I said, we're looking at kind of the genetics and we want to construct basically what's called a polygenic risk score. So we can look at combinations of genes. And if you have changes in some combination of genes, that puts you at more or less risk. 
of an adverse event. We're going to be doing doing um, tumor analyses, looking at both mu mutations and because they're so common in uh, sarcomas, fusions of genes, and then try to develop serial liquid biopsies. Um, so this is a busy slide and not meant like for you to um, look at every detail, but um, the, the, the kind of big um, domains we're looking at are kind of disease characteristics, which we're going to get from the medical record, survivor characteristics. So we, we have um, patients um, who are going, in addition to the medical record stuff, we're going to collect family history and we're going to have the patients who are in surveillance um, talk about their survivor experience via a questionnaire as well. We'll look at treatment and treatment-related effects. Um, so again, the medical record, um, collect data on symptoms using the memorial uh, symptom assessment scale, um, behavioral and lifestyle issues. We're asking a lot about lifestyle, diet, tobacco use, cannabis use, alcohol use, Fitbit, obviously, age specific. We, we will not be asking about tobacco use in the six month old, for example, <laughs> or cannabis use or alcohol use, because we probably, you know, because then we'd get into, you know, child abuse reporting and all kinds of things. So, uh, but we will be asking that. And then for patients who old enough to wear it, we're actually following their uh, activity at several times during the study um, by a Fitbit that we give them when they enroll in the study. And that Fitbit is a gift from the study. So they have that. Uh, and then looking at quality of life, uh, one of the things we think is really important is the impact of finances on quality of life. So we're looking at the impact of financial toxicity. We're looking at the impact of event scale, which is a measure of um, traumatic stress. Um, the PROMISE 57 is a large instrument um, that looks at many domains, physical function, psychosocial function. Um, there's the Pete's quality of life for the kids. Um, the Promise 49 is a different version of that, and that's for a parent to fill out on a child. We're collecting data also um, on caregivers using the Promise 49 as well as the um, short form 12. Um, we have a general functioning scale um, and the CRIS 13 she, that the caregiver will complete on siblings. So we're also looking at family function within this cohort. Um, for biospecimens, we are collecting, um, we are asking um, if the, for tumor specimens and we're sending that out for genomics. So we're doing um, next generation sequencing on the tumors to look for actual mutations. We also want to identify the mutation in the tumor. So therefore, if we want to look at the blood, we know what the tumor was and the, what the gen, uh, genetic change was in the tumor. And then we are collecting uh, peripheral blood for either looking at genetic predisposition to cancer or sarcoma, genetic risk for toxicity, as we talked about, and then the development of the circulating tumor DNA assays. And we have a biorepository where we're also storing specimens um, to be able to share with other investigators um, who want to look at a question in sarcoma or for future analyses, because lots of stuff will always be coming down the pike that we'll want to ask. Um, so that is a brief description of the study. Um, on this last slide, you can see that our flyer, which as you can also see, 
is uh, approved by our institutional re review board. I must say that out loud. Um, and um, there is a um, phone number, an email, and QR code right in this area. And uh, you know, and Christina has these slides, so you can reach out. And if you don't have your um, cameras available to take this, most importantly for this study right now, we are accruing patients from Vanderbilt, but this study is open to anyone treated anywhere. If you want to join the study, the way you can join this, you can join the study through the QR code that will lead you to a consent forum and then to our questionnaires. All the questionnaires can be done um, online. So as long as you have either computer or um, smartphone access, you can do them. If you, for some reason, do not want to or can't do them online, we also have the ability to do those via the telephone with you. Um, we would get a medical release for your records, and we would get a we would get a release for um, some slides from your institution from your tumor, and that would be sent here um, for the peripheral blood that's being drawn. Um, we are working with a company called Exam One, which is actually a global uh, company that does home lab draws, so we can get draw. We can get labs drawn anywhere um, in the continental United States, Canada, Mexico, and a few other international countries. Um, so, um, so you could really participate in the full study, even if you were not treated at Vanderbilt, because everything, everything that we get, we can get either electronically or we can go go into the home at, for the. Um, for the peripheral blood specimens. We would absolutely be delighted if people want to join this cohort. Um, what, and then we will obviously share the results of our study. Um, all of these results will be shared obviously at conferences and meetings. We will also, as this, this cohort is very new, it's um, just barely two years old and we started it right in the midst of COVID. So it was kind of delayed a little bit. Um, so we've really only accrued patients um, for about a year and a half now. And we have about 1,100 patients accrued um, into this cohort. So as we start publishing papers, um, presenting abstracts, getting um, information, um, we are developing a website for our study um, that will be publicly available so anybody can link onto it and get the results of what's happening in our study. We also will be posting on that um, website um, the way in which investigators from other institutions who want to collaborate and may want to utilize some of the data from the causal study can have access to the study with appropriate regulatory um, control. So um, that is what I was going to just present and then really wanted to um, open it up to anyone for questions or discussion. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Dr. Friedman. And um, for the, uh, you were talking about the um, blood draws and the relationship with um, exam one to be able to do that. 
And can, if so, for patients that are still regularly going to the hospital, either if they're on treatment or they're still just getting their, you know, quarterlies, can they also just have their, you know, home clinic or home hospital send send the blood through onto you guys? Um, absolutely. What we would do in that case is we would send the, the we what we'll do is we'll send the ma- we have mailers basically so we have a box because they need to go in special they need to go in special tubes and half the tubes need to be room temperature and half the tubes need to be chilled so we have this like all worked out with a box with a divider and things so we would send that whole kit to the patient um, and we do that whether they use exam one or they would use their local a local lab or their hospital um, we send it to them if they're going to use their own lab or hospital, they could go have it drawn. And then those people, the lab can, uh, there'll be a return mailer in there. So the lab can then um, just, you know, or the hospital can just send it back to us. If they're going to use exam one, they just keep that at their house. Um, We tell them to put the gel pack in the freezer. Um, And, um, and then when exam one comes, exam one will um, draw the blood pack it all up in exam one, we'll send it to us. Okay, fantastic. That makes it super easy. And um, will the test, that will, will any of the test results be shared with the participants or with their provider? Um, so there are, so if we find a genetic uh, mutation that we think has clinical implications we will share that with the patient's providers who will want to know that patient's provider so they can share it with their patient. So we have, for example, identified already several patients um, who had a sarcoma and by virtue of the genetic testing, they have a cancer predisposition syndrome, which puts that one, them at risk for other cancers during their lifetime. And two, equally as importantly, if there are other affected family members who don't know um, those family members could be at risk for cancer. So we so we have it in our consent form that they will, we will share what we believe is clinically relevant. We are also very clear, though, that these tests have been done in a research, um, not in a CLIA-certified lab. So what we recommend is that that provider, you know, takes that information as such and arranges for the patient to have, you know, confirmatory testing. Got it. So that's for the germline and hereditary. And what about the uh, tumor, uh, right. the, the the profiling for the tumor? And the profiling for the tumor, again, if we find what we think is an actionable mutation in the tumor, um, where they might be eligible for a, um, a, you know, a drug, we will, we will, we will provide that information um, back to the provider. In addition, if the patient w- just wants the provider um, to have a copy of the genomics of the tumor, we will share it with the provider and ask them to share it with the patient. We were a little hesitant about just sending um, what are basically, you know, 15 page genomics reports to patients directly. Um, without having someone available to go over it because, you know, when you um, do genomics of a tumor, you are very likely to find what are called variants of unknown significance, which are exactly what they sound like. It's a genetic variant 
to our knowledge, it has no clinical meaning. Um, it's probably important to know that they're there because maybe 10 years from now, it will have a clinical meaning, but it doesn't now. We wouldn't want pa patients to become frightened or stressed by seeing that they have all these VUSs, so to say, um, and then they don't know what to do with it. So as long as it's being reviewed with them um, in a way that they can understand it and um, and for some reason, if they're off therapy and not seeing an oncologist, you know, we could certainly work something out so they can have those results and make sense of them. Got it. So basically caveats are that they're shared if there's a clinical impact, but caveat is that it's research lab, not CLIA lab, and it'll be shared with the provider to then who can then kind of interpret those results for the patient. Okay, perfect. And, um, and I, I think I know the answer to this, but I just want to ask just to kind of clarify for everyone. So um, our bereaved, families of bereaved patients, can they kind of send their, you know, loved ones medical records to participate in the study or does this, do these have to be people that are either survivors or in treatment or? So that's a very good question. Um, for right now, at the, this point in the study, we are only enrolling patients um, who um, are yeah, who are living or uh, family members of patients who are living. Um, as we expand the cohort, we um, we would like to extend this study um, to include so people could get information so we could include information because it may be the patients, honestly, who did not survive their tumor who might actually give us very valuable information. And we don't want to lose that information. So so probably in the next year or so, we'll be expanding it. Oh, that's great. Um, and it's so, you know, so I think as you were first explaining the study, I was like, this is really great because, you know, a lot of times when we hear about these studies, really just kind of looking at perhaps kind of the genomics and how that affects uh, efficacy and outcomes, but not so much adverse effects and toxicity. So that's really cool that the study is looking at that. And that was quite the impressive, um, like just all the information that you're collecting for the patient reported outcomes and quality of life and functional outcomes. And just want to get a sense for patients interested in enrolling about how long, because it's so much good information that we so want to have and collect, but just curious how long that would take for someone to fill out. Sure. This is a very good question. Um, so if you take all of the questionnaires at baseline um, and you do them at one time, depending on how quick you are at taking surveys, it's probably about 30 to 40 minutes. However, the way it's set up, it's set up as a, in a red cap file. So you could start them, save, walk away and come back and complete another questionnaire. So nobody has to sit for any period of time for 30 to 40 minutes. Um, um, and certainly, and then if there's some questionnaire that a patient doesn't want to fill out, that's totally fine. So that's the other thing I want to stress is patients can participate almost in any um, part of the study that they want. Um, I mean, yeah, I guess if it was incredibly limited, like they wanted to just enroll and do nothing else, that probably couldn't help, right? Um, anybody, including the patient, of course. But if a patient doesn't want to answer certain questionnaires, that's fine. If the patient decides, you know, I don't want to have my blood drawn and I don't want to provide a sample or I don't want you to have my tumor or 
I just don't want to bother with um, all these forums. That is fine too. So we will, because we don't want this to be a burden to the patients. Oh, that's fantastic. And so if, um, so the, the blood is kind of ongoing, you kind of mentioned the time points for that. And if, if for some reason someone does have a recurrence, um, you know, while they're in treatment, would they, would that trigger another, um, tissue slide to be sent as well? Would you collect new tissue? We will ask if they've recurred during treatment, if, um, and if they've had another, and if they've had another biopsy, we'll ask for that. Um, if, if we can get it, um, that would be, that would be helpful. But, um, again, it's not absolutely required. It just may give us more information because especially if we have the original tumor and uh, the genomics of the original tumor, the genomics of the research tumor. Um, and again, if we find it, and particularly for patients um, who relapse, if we find something different in the relapse specimen that might be actionable, that's going to be really important, you know, probably even more important than upfront because that's when, you know, unfortunately, sometimes options aren't as good as we want them to be. But if we find a target that might help their oncologist in terms of outcome, of options. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I had meant to ask for those um, returned results. So if if there's something clinically, you know, impactful and um, uh, actionable, I should say, and um, how soon would that be shared with the provider? Like, is that, are we talking like a month, two months or... Um, we batch everything when we sit, when we're, when we're doing it. So it usually takes several months before okay. we have anything. So it's, you know, I, I tell people, you know, it's, it's going to, you know, you, you may not he hear anything for, you know, three to six months. Oh God. So we, in time, in because just because we, we're not running them every day because we just have, you know, for efficiency's sake, we have to batch them number one. And also for scientific, um, rigor, we want to run them all like on the same day with the same equipment. Um, so we don't have a lot of variation of results running things day to day. Got it. Um, and I wanted to ask also about the, um, the, uh, the personalized liquid biopsy. So, um, so you mentioned it's personalized. So is that actually like personalized to the individual based on their tumor? Yes, that's, that is the goal. Um, and we're going to develop that during there. During, the, during that, but we're not going to be able to test it in real time for relapse. Yeah. But what we're going to do is we're going to collect it, we're going to have it, um, and then we'll have the history of the patient. And if we see they relapsed on, you know, I don't know, March 15th, 2025, and we have circulating DNA from around that time pain, we can go back and say, okay, would we have seen this in the circulating DNA? Again, we don't want to release stuff to patients that we don't know what it means and we don't know if it's so we want to make sure that whatever we we find is actually valid and then we can test it prospectively in another study right and how because there are like i think there might be some commercial products that are trying to are not yes so just curious how you're kind of working with those or just trying to yeah we are actually talking to actually some of the commercial vendors right now to see what they're doing, you know, uh, because a lot of them are not including circles in their CTDNA. So we're trying to actually work with them and see if they might be interested in partnering with us. So right. then yeah. we're, not con we're not competing with industry. They could also do it, you know, much more efficiently. Um, so we are, we are, you know, every, 
pretty much every month we like we reevaluate this and say, okay, what is the best way to move forward? Um, because what the best way to move forward was, you know, a year ago is not the best way to move forward now because this field is changing too quickly. Yeah. Which is a good thing. Yeah. Yes, I know. I mean, it's actually incredible. Um, plus, it, and though for, for, I imagine for you guys, it must be so hard to stay up to date on, because everything changes so quickly. Um, I mean, but I guess the good news is that it's actually, it opens more doors. Um, so that's always, that's always good. Um, and then I did want to ask, so there was that slide that you had where you were talking about, um, you know, all the different uh, information that you were collecting and some of it was the behavioral, um, you know, like the babies using cannabis. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I was just curious, so with that, for some of that behavioral information, are you, I mean, for the study name, are you also kind of looking at causes of, of the cancer versus just really yes. to adverse events? Yes. Okay. So it's um so it's both it's it's both and that's why we want to look at exposures, um so we can look at um and lifestyle um you know because we know that for some malignancies for example you know obesity may be associated or exercise might be associated or you know obviously you know where somebody lives and you know you know pollution all those kinds of things so we'll be collecting a lot of that information so we can it if it would be great if we could understand, you know, something more about why this happens, right? Yeah. Um, that would be a, a true home run. Um, well, so I, so part of that, too, is that there'll definitely be some really interesting, I think, like pan-sarcoma insights probably from this. And it'll be interesting to see, too, like how similar some diseases might be to each other. Um, but for looking at kind of disease-specific, because a lot, a lot of these are such rare cancers, I mean, you do have a, a huge aroma goal, 2100, but for, to be able to study like in a specific disease, like what, what are your hopes for enrollment, I guess, for? Right. Uh, yeah. Per, per type of sarcoma. Yeah. 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 Obviously we want as many patients as possible with any one type of sarcoma. So if we can get, you know, a few hundred patients with any one type of sarcoma, that would be a home run. Um, because again, it's it's still a rare it's still a rare um, disease. You know, in children, there are far fewer types of sarcoma than there are in adults. Um, you know, in children, the most common you know are rhabdomyosarcoma, Ewing sarcoma, and osteosarcoma, um, and then there are some others. But in adults, um, there are you know. 90 different types of histologies um, and they have all kinds of different sarcomas. So we want at least, you know, as many patients in the major groups as possible because that'll give us the most information. Fantastic. Um, well, so, so great. And we'll make sure that we kind of share this with our global counterparts as well. Now this is a, a global study um, and so appreciate your joining us today. I know this is a busy, busy time of year. So thank you so much, Dr. Friedman, for joining us on Osteobite today and for making it better for sarcoma patients. And more information on this and all Osteobites can be found on the MIV Agents YouTube channel, on our website at mivagents.org, and at your favorite podcast place. We are going to be off for the next two weeks for the holidays. Um, we'll be kicking off season five of Osteobites on January 11th with Dr. Carrie Shadler, 
is an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics and MD Anderson Cancer Center, and also Dr. Kiri Nance, who is a physical therapist and faculty member in the Department of Epidemiology and Cancer Control at St. Jude Children's Hospital. And together, they're gonna to provide a clinical perspective as well as an overview on the latest evidence that documents the need for and the initial success of exercise intervention during and after treatment for cancer. You can find our Osteobites lineup for the next few months on our website. And if you have any ideas for future topics that you'd like to hear about, please feel free to email us at events at amibeagents.org. Thank you again, Dr. Friedman, and for all of you for spending an hour with us today and joining us for our last episode of 2023. We hope to see you back here on Osteobites in 2024 on January 11th when we chat with uh, Drs. Chadler and Ness. And until then, wishing you all a relaxing and rejuvenating holiday. <laughs>